I want to begin this lesson by saying why we must think rightly about God. A.W. Tozer entitled the first chapter of his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, with that heading, Why We Must Think Rightly About God. Tozer's opening statement in that book is actually inside the cover of your bulletin. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. I believe Tozer's right, and I don't know how many of you have ever read A.W. Tozer, but let me encourage you to read him every opportunity you get. He had one of the keenest insights into the character of God that I've ever encountered. We will never rise above our concept of God and what God is as a church, as a people. We will always reflect what our concept of God is, regardless of whether that concept is right Regardless whether that concept is wrong, our understanding of God defines us. The mightiest thought that we can think is God. Tozer again said, without doubt, the mightiest thought that the mind can entertain is the thought of God. And the weightiest word in any language is its word for God. The highest thoughts of man are his thoughts of God. All other thoughts are subservient. Thoughts of family, thoughts of career, thoughts of home and homestead, thoughts of leisure and vacation, politics, world hunger, crime, violence, sin, even religion and spirituality, all of those thoughts are subservient to our thoughts and our conception of God. You may ask the question, why? And how can that be? Because our thoughts of God affect our thoughts of family and career and home and homestead and leisure and vacation and politics and world hunger and crime and violence and sin and our religion and our spirituality. Our thoughts of God influence everything, or I should say our thoughts of God should influence and affect everything about our lives. We're beginning a series, Back to the Basics. At first, this lesson was going to be one sermon. Until I realized there are anywhere between 20 and 25 points, depending on how you divide the attributes of God. On the back of your bulletin, normally, where we would have a, a religious comic, are some of the points that you'll see over the next few weeks in reference to this series, Understanding God. 
But the very first thing that we must understand if we are to go back to the basics is God. When I was 19 years old, I got tired of working at a Winn-Dixie and thought I need to do something with my life. Wasn't quite sure which way to go. So I stopped by the Air Force recruiter station. He had me convinced within 30 minutes that the Air Force was the way I should go. I became very excited. I was able to lock in a job of air traffic controller. I took all the tests and qualified for everything. Had my date to go to basic, San Antonio, Texas. Got on the plane, flew to San Antonio, got off the plane, and about ten other guys were there that actually were doing exactly what I was doing. And all of a sudden, this big, huge man with a jar haircut came in the airport, knew each and every one of us, and began to scream right there in the airport. And I was like, man, doesn't he know there are people around? He had a big old state trooper looking hat on. He looked extremely mean. He routed us to a bus. And when we got on the bus, he screamed at us some more. And then the guy on the bus that's driving the bus, he had one of those hats too, and he started screaming at us. And then they drove us to the Air Force Base. And our TI came out, our training instructor. And then he started screaming at us. Well, by this time, I'm thinking, I have made the biggest mistake of my life. How do you get out? I'm like wanting to raise my hand and go, how do you get out of here? Because I, I don't think this is cut out for me. We then proceeded to play a game. We had all our luggage with us, one big bag, which we would never use while we were there. But we proceeded to play this game called Pick Em Up and Put Em Down. For a whole hour, we stood right there while he shouted and screamed, Pick Em Up! Put them down. Pick them up. Put them down. And man, I'm telling you, by the end of that hour, one, my arm was killing me. And two, I was like, I've definitely made a mistake. There's no doubt about it. They then took us and they ushered us into this place where this guy managed to cut all my hair off in less than ten seconds. I mean, I had long hair at the time. It was the style. And it was on the floor in ten seconds. And I was a bald-headed fellow. Now I'm in total culture shock. Then when they get us out of the barbershop, it's not like they're going to comfort us and say, it'll be all right, guys, really, it'll grow back. Don't worry about it. No, they screamed at us some more. And then they took us to this room and they started showing us videos and telling us all about the United States Air Force. And then they took us outside and they screamed at us a little bit more. And they took us back inside and another man came in and he told us all about the Air Force. Everything you needed to know about the Air Force in less than... 12 hours that first day. I did not understand it then. But now I look back on it and realize the logic of their method. They wanted us to know who the Air Force was and who was in charge. And it was no longer us. And we needed that lesson. We needed to understand that because those two points had to be understood or everything would be chaos. We had to know that they're the Air Force and they are in charge, not us. Well, there are many Christians out there today who don't know who God is and they do not know He is in charge. So today a good place to start this Back to the Basic series is understanding God. 
Today I want us to look at that and the first thing we need to understand is that God is incomprehensible. I had someone come up to me this morning and say, that's an oxymoron. Understanding God, God is incomprehensible. You're right. God is beyond being fully known. He is incomprehensible, not in the sense that the concept of God is unintelligible, but in the sense that God cannot fully and directly be known by finite creatures because of His uniqueness and His infinitude. The child, the philosopher, and the religionist have all one question. What is God like? Tozer says, God is not like anything. That is, He is not exactly like anything or anybody. God is beyond total comprehension. He is incomprehensible. Now, be careful here. That's not to say that we can know nothing of God. Obviously, we can know what God has revealed of Himself in Scripture. If not, then the sermon at best would be a shot in the dark if we could know nothing of God. But understand that the finite can never completely understand the infinite. As finite creatures, we have difficulties in knowing many things. As finite creatures, we have difficulties in knowing everything about anything. In the last 200 years, I want you to consider all the advances that have taken place in the world. When it comes to medical science, 200 years ago, brother, you got appendicitis, you're gone. Now that's almost an outpatient procedure. Communications. Remember the time, I do, when you had a phone at the house and when you left, the phone stayed at the house? But now we take the phones with us everywhere. But guess what? We don't know everything there is about communications because calls are still dropped. We don't know everything there is about medical science because people still get sick and people still die. Think about travel. 200 years ago, it would take you easily over a year to go from one side of this earth to another. Maybe two. Now, in a matter of hours, you can leave Atlanta, Georgia, and be on the other side of the world in a matter of a few hours. But planes still crash. Cars still wreck. Think of space travel. We've managed in the last 60 years to send someone from this earth to another planet that happens to orbit this earth. And they walk there. But everybody remembers Challenger and Columbia and Apollo 1 and Apollo 13, all of which lives were lost with the exception of 13 and then almost Economics in the last 200 years, man, we have gotten a handle on it. We know all about world economics, but yet there are still countries that are going bankrupt. Gas is still almost $4 a gallon. So even though we have come so far, we don't know everything about anything. We know everything about nothing. I mean, we just don't. And that fact punctuates our limitations and our Finiteness. As finite beings, we have difficulty in knowing everything about finite things. At one time, we thought we understood the single-cell organism. But as science progressed, we've cracked that thing open and we've found complex engines within that single-cell organism. DNA strands that Bill Gates says are far beyond computer languages that run your computer on your desktop at home. 
design and organization that we never even dreamed existed in a one-cell organism. So we're still learning. The more we know, the more we know how little we know. We struggle in knowing everything there is to know about finite things, how much more so infinite things. The Bible makes it clear that God is an infinite God. 2 Samuel 7 and verse 22, David said, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Isaiah the 40th chapter and verse 18, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare Him? Verse 25 of that same book in that same chapter, To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Jeremiah 10 and verse 6 and verse 7, Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of nations? For this is your rightful due, for among all the wise men of the nations and all of their kingdoms there is none like you. Job 37 and verse 5, God thunders marvelously with His voice. He does great things which cannot be comprehended. Ephesians, the third chapter, verses 17 through 19, Paul prayed that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In Romans, the 11th chapter, verse 33, Paul said, Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Darby translates that verse like this, Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how incomprehensible are His judgments and how unsearchable His ways. God is incomprehensible. Comprehending an incomprehensible God is what God wants us to try to do. He has revealed so much of Himself, but we'll never understand Him completely. If we spend all of eternity trying to understand God, we can never do so. He is infinite, and He is infinitely incomprehensible. Again, that doesn't mean that we can't understand God's essential being. He has revealed that about Himself. But what it does mean is that God, and all that is God, will never be completely understood by finite creatures. Only an infinite being can understand an infinite being. Perhaps that's why John opened his gospel with John 1 and verse 18 when he said, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Perhaps that's why Matthew records Jesus' words in chapter 11 and verse 27 of his book, All things have been delivered unto me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son will reveal Him. The Greek word that Jesus uses there is from the Greek word epikonosko. It means to become thoroughly acquainted with, to know thoroughly, to know accurately, to know well. Only the Son, only the Spirit of God can fully understand God the Father and vice versa. But we as finite beings can never comprehend an incomprehensible God. We can only know what He has chosen to reveal about Himself. So first, in understanding God, we must realize God is incomprehensible. Second, God is eternal. 
He is the uncaused cause. You see, matter is not eternal. And though you may not understand it, nor do I really, to be honest with you, we know that because of the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics says that matter cannot be eternal. It had to have a beginning place. So because of that, we're forced to wander back through time to a point when there was no matter. When there was no matter whatsoever. At some point in eternity past, an uncaused cause created matter. Of necessity, there has to be an uncaused cause. Something or someone that had no beginning had to begin everything that had a beginning. That is an inevitable conclusion. Nothing comes from nothing. I put a note out on Facebook last night. It didn't work. I said, does anybody have a glass box? So I couldn't find one. I wasn't going to send anyone home this morning to get one, even though someone had one that was pink. That would have worked, probably. But pretend I've got a glass box up here, and inside this glass box is nothing. It is a total vacuum. All the air has been taken out. There is nothing in this box. I can set that box on this podium and come back in 100 years, and guess what will be in the box? Nothing. I can leave that box on this podium for a 1,000 years and come back, and guess what's going to be in the box? Nothing. I can leave that box here for a million years and come back and guess what's going to be in the box? Nothing. Now the universe is 13.7 billion years old. Let's come back after 13.7 billion years and let's look in the box. What's going to be in the box? Nothing. Because nothing comes from nothing. There will never be a time when something comes from nothing. Now, if nothing comes from nothing, we're forced to conclude there is an eternal uncaused something that caused everything. The Bible says that eternal uncaused something is someone. And the Bible says that someone is God. In Psalms, the 90th chapter and verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Psalms 93 and verse 2, Thy throne is established of old, thou art from everlasting. Psalms 90 and verse 4, For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Peter says in 2 Peter 3 and verse 8, Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. One day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now don't let those two verses get you confused, and don't take them literally. Peter and the psalmist are simply saying that time has no meaning to God. He is eternal. A thousand years is like a three-hour watch in the night for him. Psalms 102 and verse 12, But thou, O Lord, shall endure forever in thy remembrance unto all generations. Isaiah 40, verse 28, Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of His understanding. That would actually also go to His being incomprehensible and His omniscience. The Bible makes it clear that God is the eternal uncaused Cause. Now I want you to think about it. Without an eternal uncaused cause, 
there would be nothing. If this universe did not exist at one time, there was nothing, then there would still be nothing. There has to be an eternal uncaused cause, and God is the one. God is the one. God is the only one that's eternal. And you might say, hey, wait a minute, preacher. The Bible says heaven's eternal. The Bible says hell's eternal. The Bible says people are eternal. You're right. It does. But the eternality of these things as well as us began. Revelation 10, verse 5 and verse 6. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are therein are and the earth and all the things that therein are and the sea and all the things that are therein. He declared that there should be time no longer. Hell is eternal. Matthew 25 and verse 41. Jesus said at the judgment, everyone will be separated right and left. And he will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, ye cursed. And everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You and I are co-eternal beings with God. But before you were conceived in your mother's womb, you did not exist. Your eternal existence began at some point. I believe it begins at the point of conception. God is the only one whose eternality is innate. So the second thing we must understand about God and we must realize about God is that God is eternal. The third thing that we must understand about God is that God is triune. The Trinity is holy ground. And let me tell you something, it's a little hard. Tozer puts it like this. He says, To meditate on the three persons of the Godhead is to walk in thought through the garden eastward in Eden and to tread on holy ground. Our sincerest effort to grasp the incomprehensible mystery of the Trinity must remain forever futile, and only by the deepest reverence can we be saved from actual presumption. He's basically saying it's something that we'll never completely and absolutely understand. We'll never completely and absolutely understand the Trinity. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that I comprehend something that so many before me have not when it comes to the Godhead and the Trinity. I think, though, however, the easiest way to understand the Trinity is not to think about three, but to think about one. You say, well, I'm not sure if I'm following you. Well, the Shema was the hub of Jewish thought In their religious world, it comes from Deuteronomy, the 6th chapter, verse 4 and verse 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Now, I've dealt with that passage before. I want to focus in on where it says the Lord our God is one Lord. What did Moses mean when he said one? Was he talking about one person? Was he talking about one being? Was he talking about just one God? You see, the foundation to understanding the Trinity is understanding what's meant by one. Well, let's see what the Bible does with that. Genesis, the second chapter in verse 21. This is the creation. And the Bible says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And as he slept, he took out one of his ribs, closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. 
A few chapters later in Genesis the 11th chapter, dealing with the Tower of Babel, God Himself came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men built. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. In both of these situations, in marriage as well as in the rebellious people building the Tower of Babel, they were not one in person, they were one in purpose. And I believe if we're to understand the triune God that we follow, we must understand we're not dealing with one person, we're dealing with one who is in purpose with one another. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in purpose. Now the Old Testament only gives brief hints concerning the Trinity. In Genesis 1, 24-27, God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after its kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after its kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God created He Him. Male and female created He them. That's a hint to the triune God that we follow. In Daniel the 7th chapter, Daniel the 7th chapter in verse 13, when the disciples stood there and Jesus ascended into heaven, the Bible says a cloud received Him out of their sight. Well, Daniel 7 and verse 13 picks up on that which they could not see. And He says, I saw in night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought Him near before Him. And if you continue to read in Daniel, you'll see there was given unto Him a kingdom. That's the ascension of Christ. The Son of Man is brought before the ancients of days. That's a Hebrew idiom for God the Father. There are others in the Old Testament. For instance, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the furnace of fire. And the king looks in and says, I see one like the Son of Man, a fourth in the fire. In Psalms 110 and verse 1, a psalm that is quoted over and over in the New Testament, the Lord, Jehovah, said to my Lord, Adonai... Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. That is God the Father speaking to God the Son. Over and over it is used in the New Testament. Now the New Testament sheds total light on the Trinity. In John the 8th chapter and verse 42, Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but He sent me. Some people have taken the position that God is just one But He manifests Himself in three different ways. In the Old Testament, He's God the Father. In the uh, ministry of Jesus, He's Christ. And in the ministry of the church, He is the Holy Spirit. Well, this doesn't work when you apply the passages from John. Also in John the 13th chapter, verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and went to God. That doesn't work there. In 2 John the 1st chapter, verse 3, John, in his introduction to that general epistle, says, Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. In Mark, the 15th chapter, in verse 34, as Jesus hung there on the cross, the Bible says in the ninth hour he cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
In Luke the 23rd chapter, in verse 46, when Jesus had cried out from the cross with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Thy hands I commit My spirit. And having said this, He breathed His last. In John the 8th chapter, in verse 16, Jesus said, Yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone. I am with the Father who sent Me. In that same chapter, verse 29, And He who sent Me is with Me. The Father has not left Me alone. I always do those things which please Him. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, when He was baptized by John, the Bible says when He had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens opened to Him, and He, speaking of John the Baptist, saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon Him, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In that incident where Jesus is baptized, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are present. We follow a triune God. Three, but one. You say, how is that relevant? Well, it's relevant when we try to understand God, the God that we worship. And it's relevant when we understand that as Christians, we have entered into a covenant with this triune God in His name. Matthew, the 28th chapter, verses 18 through 20. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You and I have entered into a covenant with a triune God. If you've been baptized into Christ, you have been baptized in the name of the Father, name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. You are in a covenant with a triune God. If you disallow that covenant, you do despite to the Spirit of grace. You crucify to yourself the Son of God afresh, and you spurn the loving God, the eternal God who gave you the most precious gift He had to give. You are in covenant with the Godhead, the Holy Trinity that is God. So the third thing we must understand when it comes to God is realizing that God is triune. I'll quickly finish with point number four. We must also understand that God is creator. God is creator of all things. He is the uncreated creator. When I was a child, I remember asking a preacher... Who created God? I thought I had this guy stumped. I was actually sort of proud of myself. I know he's not going to be able to answer this question. And he looked at me and said, no one. God has always been. It wasn't until years later I even came close to understanding that. But God is the uncaused cause. Now you may say, hey, that's being redundant to the second point of this lesson. Not really. One has to do with the eternality of God. The other has to do with God's choice to create a universe with billions and possibly trillions of sentient beings. God is the creator of all things. All three persons of the Godhead were involved in the creation. Genesis, the first chapter, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. John in his introduction, John 1 verses 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all had an active part in the creation of this world. Anything, anyone, everything, everyone is a product of a creative, eternal, triune God. Now let me tell you something. Creation is not something that is done easily. How many of you in this audience have come up with recipes? 
Now, I know y'all have because we got a cookbook out there. So y'all just being shy this morning. That's what's going on. Well, maybe you came up with the greatest barbecue sauce in the world. By the way, Herbert, I love yours. And you can say, I created that barbecue sauce. But really, those are the wrong words. Because you didn't create that barbecue sauce. You took a number of already created ingredients, you mixed them together in certain proportions, and it brought about a unique barbecue sauce. A mother and a father have a beautiful child. Has any of y'all seen my grandson? (laughs) The statement may be made when they have that beautiful baby, look at what you've created. But in actuality, God created the eternal soul within the body of that child that was a result of a complex reproductive system that God set in place from the beginning. You simply followed God's designated plan. You created nothing. God is the creator of all things. Science has never created something from nothing, and they never will. Despite undocumented claims, science has never created life from non-life. Using created stuff. There's one person out there saying they have. The application is easy. God is creator. There is none other. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.21. God created great whales and every living creature that moves. And the water brought forth abundantly after its kind. Every winged fowl after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Psalms 148.5, let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created. Isaiah 45 and verse 12, I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all the host have I commanded. Isaiah 45 and verse 18, for thus saith the Lord God who created the heavens, God Himself that formed the earth and made it, He that established it, He that created it not in vain, He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Colossians 1 and verse 16, by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or power, all things were created by Him and for Him. Revelation 4 and verse 11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things. And for Thy pleasure they are and were created. You say, well, how does that have relevance to me? How does that apply to Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and the rest of my week and the rest of my life? Solomon sought all there was to know. By the end of his book in Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter and verse 1, he says, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. You might say, well, I'm not sure if I follow what that's saying. The easy-to-read version says this, Remember your Creator while you are young, before the bad times come, before the years come, when you say, I have wasted my life. My best advice to the young people of this church is, Remember your Creator while you are young, because you will grow old. Ecclesiastes 12, at the end of that book where Solomon sought to know what the purpose of life was, in verse 6 and verse 7, he says, Remember your Creator before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. I like the way the message puts that. Life. Lovely while it lasts, 
is soon over. Life as we know it, precious and beautiful, ends. In verse 13 and verse 14 of that final chapter of Ecclesiastes, the people ask, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work in the judgment with every sacred thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. How is it relevant on Monday? You will one day stand before your Creator. You are here because He chose to create you, to give you an existence. You will one day stand before Him and give answer for your life. 